FM Breakfast Show with the double L team, Lyle and Lawson. Welcome, everybody. This is The Breakfast Show. You're listening on 87.6, or 88 right across Australia. You're here with the Double L team and a special shout out this morning to people listening in Kayama in New South Wales on 87.8, in uh, Tannum Sands, Queensland on 87.6 and in Loxton, South Australia also on 87.6. Bit of a shout out to some of our listeners from different parts of the country this morning. Something we like to do if you're from one of those locations, then give us a call or send us a text message. Let us know you're listening. We would love to hear from you. Lawson, what are you thankful for this morning? Listen, I am thankful just for, you know, just getting back into work this week and just meeting with people and, and well, also work as in radio, which has been great, but also meeting with people, sharing the Bible with them, and I'm also really looking forward to preaching tomorrow at the Warners Bay Seventh-day Adventist Church. So oh, that's cool. My sermon topic and title is, my sermon title is called How to Make Friends. So if you would like to be able to make friends, then come along. Uh, it, well, it's essentially all about like... So this is you talking about how to make friends? Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? I know. But it, essentially, it's like how can we take the things that we do uh, for, say, God or for hobbies or whatever it may be, and then use that to connect with people so that we can lead them to God. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's fantastic. Uh, message and of course if you would like to come to the Raymond Terrace Adventist Church I'll be speaking there and we're having oh. communion service oh wow so it's going to be a high Sabbath very special day amazing so super looking forward to it get into some grape juice and some bread that's it remember Christ you're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM positively different we're about to get into positively different news before we do time for the quiz okay which of the following kings reigned first in Israel? Okay, so this is a multiple choice question. Jeroboam, Zimri, Ahab, or Joram? 0491-064-669 is the number to call or text if you know the answer to that one. If you do, then you will go into the draw to win the great prophetic books of Daniel and Revelation. It's a Bible study journal, so it's got the books right there, and then underneath you've got a bunch of lines where you can write notes and you know, work out what's going on. But also we're giving away Understanding Daniel and Revelation by Mark Finley as well. Either you can get an audiobook version or you can get a regular book version so that you'll be able to hear an amazing commentary, read the verses for yourself, come to conclusions, write down uh, your thoughts. But again, that question was, which of the following kings of Israel, sorry, which of the following kings reigned first in Israel? Jeroboam, Zimri, Ahab, or Joram? If you know the answer, 0491-064-669. And guys, we are actually drawing the quiz today. So you have only a couple more chances left. So get in with some correct answers. Okay, great stuff right there. Let us know the answers to those and you'll go in the draw right now. Let's have some positively different news. Okay, positively different news. We're going to talk about a shipwreck. Okay, shipwreck. Is, you know, you could think, is that positive? But it happened a long time ago, so now we're just kind of reaping the benefits of finding the stuff that was on the ship. So basically, uh, there was a ship that sunk in the Bahamas. Its name was Nuestra Señora de, de la Maravillas, and that means Our Lady of Wonders. Okay. 
And it was a Spanish ship that was heading down to Cuba to, you know, check out what's what's going on down there. Yeah, we know why Spanish ships headed headed across to the New World back in the day. They were going there to collect gold. That's right. And that's exactly what this ship was. It was full of consignments from, like, the, you know, royal and private, full of gold chains and gold coins and swords and all kinds of things. Uh, now, the shipwreck, like, they've found the shipwreck, but, like, in terms of the contents of the ship, being that people knew that the shipwreck was there, has, you know, been pillaged and all kinds of different... Okay, so this was discovered some time ago and it's now been plundered. Yeah, but, like, licenseless, you know. So, yes. like, like the authorities have never given out licenses to actually go and check out the shipwreck, so all of the, the work that's being done... And people just sort of are like, I'm going to go for a swim here today. Oh, look what I found, a gold bar on the bottom of the ocean. That's right. I'll take that home. But up until recently, where a group of explorers, a kind of explorer collaborative, uh, you know, people who do this kind of stuff for a living, called Alec, Alan Exploration, they were finally given a license to go check out this ship that sunk in the 1650s. So we're mm-hmm. talking, yeah, peak... Long time ago. Spanish Empire. Yes, like, and, peak, and peak gold coming out of the Americas. <laughs> That's right. And they've been able to just find all kinds of amazing stuff. As I mentioned, they found a silver sword and it's like engraved and everything with the name Don Martin de uh, Aranda y Guzman. So it's like, it's like this soldier's personal sword. They've been finding these big gold chains that are like like two kilos three kilos like heavy like <laughs> coins this is where Spain was just a wash with gold pendants and jewels like all kinds of things and I just thought it was really cool like it's it's amazing to go and to just to uncover so much history these particular you know what Spain spend all their gold on what they spent it on building an armada to take Britain back for the Catholic Church. And what happened to the armada? The whole thing sank. It sank, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, this particular ship sunk in a kind of comical way as well, coming together with another ship in the <laughs> right around the Bahamas, like another ship as a part of like that was a part of their fleet. Right. So essentially, they're actually called back to Spain from Cuba. Yes. They were like, hey. Quick, come back. This is in 1654. And at that time, then they realized like, oh, there's a big, you know, fleet of Spanish, uh, not Spanish, English warships that we need to avoid. Yes. And so then they start doing some U-turns in the bay to like get out the other way. And then they run into each other and the ship just sinks. What happened to the other one? The other one was fine. Uh, okay. the other, the other ship was completely okay and it got back. But yeah, there was around 650 people. Uh, yeah, Spanish galleons were notoriously hard to control. That's right. Just ridiculously hard to control. I think, yeah, because of their size and their capacity. Their size, like, their shape, uh, the kind of rigging that they were running, the amount of weight that they would try and load onto these things. Mm. Yeah. Well, this specific galleon, like, it had 650 people on it when it got struck. Because it got struck and then it ran up on some reef. Right. And then, like, then... That's it. Got some holes and then just sunk. Like, this is terrible. Uh, only 45 people survived. Ooh. So, like, it was a heavy mass casualty event. Swimming wasn't really a big thing back in the day, was it? <laughs> Especially for Spanish people. Like, yeah. the, you know, oh, like, Span- Spain is surrounded by coast, but at the same time. Nah, but people back in medieval times just didn't go swimming. They're just like, no, nah, it's not for me. Yeah. Like, especially if you're from Spain. Like, if you live in Madrid, Madrid, like, being the capital of Spain, is, like, in the centre 
There's no water there. It's literally like in Madrid looks like they built a massive city in Tamworth. Like if you're inside the city, you're like, wow, this is a massive city. If you leave the city, there's nothing. It's like Canberra, but like Canberra at least has some like hills and like rocks and kind of some interesting topography. Yeah, there are Tam- some. Tamworth's got a few hills. There are some hills like in Tamworth and there are some like, Maybe it's like hills Dubbo. in Madrid, but it's like not that hilly. As, so, as soon as you start to get out of Madrid, you know, you start like there's some beautiful scenery in Spain. But so maybe what they did was like, here's some boring land, so let's make it interesting because we don't need to make the rest of the land interesting. That's right. L- literally. They're like, oh, this area has the scalability to have a big city on it that we can, you know, fully build and plan and control rather than have to kind of fight mm. fight the terrain. Versus, like, you have a city like Barcelona, which is on the coast, which is incredibly, you know, it's, like, super pretty as, like, the mountain, the coast, like, all this kind of stuff. Whereas Madrid is just, yep, they dropped a big city, uh, they dropped a big city in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so, so, like, I can imagine, yes, yeah, swimming definitely wasn't their thing and that's why they had such a casualty event. But now all of these pieces are going going on, you know, display and whatnot. It's good that they're being found by um, scientists and historians and people who will display them, you know, not necessarily. Talking about, talking about shipwrecks and cool treasure, I, uh-huh. got some, I got some cool treasure off a shipwreck the other day. Really? Yes. Which shipwrecked? The Britannic. Ah. Uh. Sister ship to the Titanic. Ah. Uh. Struck a mine, went down, struck a German mine, sank, and one of the survivors grabbed hold of a large wooden box Mm-hmm. Uh, his name was uh, somebody name of Thomas Henry Burke and was able to then hang onto that box and be rescued and he kept the box uh-huh. and later came to Australia and still had the box and turned it into a toolbox uh-huh. and it is now mine. It's your toolbox. <laughs> it is now mine. That is amazing. Yeah. Some definite history going on there. Came from his grandson, Stephen Burke. Oh, that's amazing. So massive shout out. Massive shout out. Hey, in other ocean news, oceanic news, well, ocean and oceanic news, the Great Barrier Reef, apparently parts of it have shown the highest coral cover in over 36 years. Oh, that's good news. That is very good news. Now, this doesn't apply to all the Great Barrier Reef. There have been lots of bleaching events over the yes. however many years that we've been monitoring it and there's lots of the reef that is struggling uh, but particularly when it comes to the reef that is north of Cooktown and then the central Great Barrier Reef as well they've been able to see an increase of 36% coral cover that's the reefs north of Cooktown and 33% in the central Great Barrier Reef. That's really good news because I remember the Great Barrier Reef back in the day and it was absolutely amazing but you know I went there again maybe seven or eight years ago mm-hmm. and it was just it was just, oh, it was probably 10 years ago even, mm. and, and it deteriorated so much it was hardly even worth going snorkeling compared to what it was before. Mm. Well, they've seen like bleaching events. We had some pretty extreme ones in 2016, 2017, also in 2020 as well due to, you know, the heat and, well, I remember at the start of 2020, it was kind of difficult to see anywhere you were because there was always smoke in the air. Uh, but even in 2022, they had a small bleaching event as well. But the bleaching events at these times, or well, particularly this year in 2022, apparently haven't been strong enough to kill out all the coral that's there or, you know, it's damaged them, but they've been able to rejuvenate and come back and see incredible cover. Now, again, as I said, this doesn't apply to the entirety of the Great Barrier Reef. There are parts of it that are just completely bleached and wrecked and it's incredibly sad but it's good to see that uh there is some of it still to go see 
Nice. And so if you want to he- head up there and go snorkeling, just say, hey, can you take me to the central part or the part that's like north of Cooktown, please? Because I want to see... North of Cooktown will be hard to get to. Yeah. But, but worth seeing. But it's worth seeing, definitely. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. It's time for the second question for our quiz. That's right. The second question is, how many chapters are in the book of Psalms? 0491-064-669 is the number to call or text if you know the answer to that one. If you do, you can win the great prophetic books of Daniel and Revelation, the Bible study journal, as well as Understanding Daniel and Revelation by Mark Finley, either in audiobook form or in regular book form, so that you can become your own theologian. You can learn about these inc- incredible prophetic books that will bless you so much. And again, that question was, how many chapters are in the book of Psalms? 0491-064-669. All right, let's go to some more serious news, mm-hmm. and let's find out what is happening around our world right now. Let me tell you about this story. So this is a new law that was just passed to ban proselytization, so basically any kind of outreach, so any kind of of Christian activity, Mm -hmm. essentially. So, you know, as you and I, as Christians, uh, proselytization is pretty much what we live. Yeah. There's kind of nothing else that we do. (laughs) You know, for anyone who is a genuine, true Christian of God, that is your life. Your Mm. life is sharing Jesus with others. And so this new law has banned any kind of sharing uh, the knowledge of Jesus with others. And it has also required any religious organization to uh, register within 90 days or be kicked out. Oof. Pretty rough. Yeah. What country do you reckon that is? Please don't say it's Australia. It's not Australia. Okay, 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 good. You know what? This sounds. Because if it was Australia, you would be in trouble. You, you, you know, you, you know, done. you know who this sounds like. This sounds, like? sounds like Canada, bro. Ah, it's not Canada. Really? No, it's not Australia. It's not Canada. You going? Interesting to hear you going with Western countries. Typically, you would hear something like this from the ten forty window. Yeah, right? I think because you asked me to guess who it was, I'm like, it's I'm, not the ten forty window. It's yeah, that's right. Uh, but I'm like, I'm surprised it's not Canada because. You know, Justin Trudeau is always playing games like that. Yes, but, he is. But uh, who? who what so this you? happened in the United States. No way. <laughs> it happened in the United it, States. Like federally? No, not fed. No, 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 no. Very, very much not federally. So this was the Oglala Sioux Tribal Council uh, voted to pass an ordinance, or, an ordinance that barred all proselytization on the reservation. Um, and required any religious organization to yeah register within ninety days or be booted off the so reservation. The reservation. So this is what a First Nations group. Yeah, this is a First Nations group. This is is kind of like you know indigenous land mm-hmm. uh, that they have control over, and they have a tribal council that is able to make you know certain rules in relationship to what happens on that uh, tribal land. And what's interesting is that the challenges that Indigenous people in the United States face are very similar to what they face in Australia. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the uh, help and aid that they are receiving is from charitable organisations, the majority, the vast majority of those charitable organisations in the United States. And the only ones working on reservations that I know of are all Christian organisations. And so it's kind of a little bit like cutting your nose off to spite your face. Mm. Uh, Interesting, interesting... uh, Regulation that was passed here. Anyway, it was rescinded uh, almost immediately because, well, 
within a very short number of days it was like, well, this is actually unconstitutional. Mm. Uh, but they have still required every religious organisation to register within 90 days or be booted off, which I would question whether that is constitutional in the United States. Mm. I don't really know how the reservation system works, so I can't really comment on the legalities of that. But whenever you're requiring, you have laws requiring people groups to register, mm-hmm. it kind of raises red flags in me, in my mind. And when you are allowing that kind of thing to happen, it has that very Holocaust feel to it, doesn't it? You know, mm. it's going so a star on everybody's arm. Mm. Yeah, it, it just doesn't feel right somewhere along the line. But anyway, that's uh, what has taken place. Yeah, I guess their perspective is potentially they're like, oh, maybe maybe they feel as though Christians take advantage of First Nations people living on the reservations. Apparently it came about as a result of a tract that was being distributed mm-hmm. that uh, they took offence to. The details of that track, ha- tract have not been released that I've been able okay. to find. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, okay, there are people who are going to distribute tracts. You know, I get tracts in my mailbox. Uh, my friendly Jehovah's Witness neighbours from across the corner, they write me letters from time to time. There are some pretty radical Baptists um, in our area who put some really radical tracts in our mm. mailbox from time to time. And I read with them, read them with interest before recycling them. Yeah. You know, you know, it's, it's like, like oh, there, there is no threat here. Yeah, read them. It says, like, you're going to die if you have any barcodes in your house. You're like, oh, okay. You're going to burn in hell, yeah. eternal hell. Yeah. You know, I get these eternal hellfire ones. In my, I literally get eternal hellfire ones in my mailbox. And it's like, this is no threat to me. Mm. You know, I know what the Bible says on this, so why would I be feel threatened by it? Mm. And I think that's kind of the attitude that we need to have. It's just a piece of paper. Totally. If it's calling for violence, then that's illegal. Yep. Take it to court. Have the people locked up. You know, there's already laws about that. All right, let's uh, continue on. Okay, so this was an interesting story, the most common form of abuse against pregnant women. So we talk, we, we have oh, heard wow. a lot about, you know, domestic abuse over the last few years, and we've, you know, made some good steps forward in, uh, in, in, in bringing back domestic abuse. We've looked at uh, abuse against women. We've looked at abuse against elders. Mm. These are two vulnerable populations that do tend to cop it more than some of the other populations within our society. We've looked at racial abuse, uh, where you know, minorities and so forth. So the mo- so so pregnant women. I mean, it's pretty awful that abuse would ever take place in relationship to a pregnant woman. Uh, it's in fact, it's kind of unimaginable. Mm. But anyway, mm. evil exists in our world. They found that the most common form of coercion and abuse of pregnant women is that which pressures them into having abortion Oof. with tactics including threats of uh, use of threats and of violence. And this takes place in 10% of unplanned pregnancies. Mm. And so there's a, there's a really important lesson, I think, here that uh, women can really take to heart, mm. and that is that if you're going to risk pregnancy, then require the guy to sign a piece of paper Mm. to say that he'll hang around and help you raise that child. Mm -hmm. If he's not prepared to do that, then I would say move on. Mm -hmm. Find somebody else who is prepared to do that. Yeah. It's, it's, It's really that simple because that's going to reduce these incidences dramatically. Mm hmm and you know just 
Anyway, uh, it's called the marriage contract, by the way. Mm. Um, moving on to buried Bibles, and this is uh, film mogul Terry uh, Tyler Perry, uh, who recently revealed that he used Bibles to establish establish the foundation of his uh, 330-acre Atlanta, Georgia studio due to the location's dark past. And so this used to be a Confederate army base back in the day. Um, Of course, he's an African-American, and so when he walked onto the property, he felt that uh, it was haunted by ghosts of the Confederate army that, you know, held ill will towards African-Americans. And so he was like, well, what will I do about this? And so when he poured the concrete for the foundations for his studio, he filled them with Bibles, Mm -hmm. which I find disturbing and bizarre because the Bible is not a magic, is is not a magic icon. Uh The Bible is the word of God. It is supposed to be read and taken into the mind and into the heart, not placed in concrete in the foundations of your building. It's not going to do any any good there, what you need to do is to bring it into your heart so that it changes your life and so that you do not produce on those studios uh, media that is filled with gratuitous violence, immorality and themes focused on redemptive revenge. Mm. Yeah, like I'm just thinking, I'm like, Tyler Perry is like, if any of you have seen any Tyler Perry movies, which you shouldn't, like, don't, like, because they're, they're terrible. Uh-huh, <laughs> they're, uh-huh. they're terrible. Like, yes. I, I also, I don't appreciate his work because I don't think it's very good. But simultaneously, I'm like, th- this guy doesn't seem religious in the least. Yet the, he's opening, acting- the opening gala for his for his studio was, uh, was full-blown worship service. Really? And the thing that disturbs me is you have your full-blown worship service, you put Bibles into the concrete and the foundations, and then you produce stuff that is as anti-Christian as it possibly could be. Wow. Uh, the Bible is all about changing lives, and for people living moral lives and producing moral content, it is pretty scary and blasphemous when you put Bibles into your concrete and then stand on top of those with immoral content. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. It is The Breakfast Show here on Faith FM. Time for interview of the day. Before we do, time for another question for our quiz. Next question for the quiz. What prowling animal did Peter compare the devil to? 0491 is the number to call or text. This one's a little bit of a layout, guys. Straight to the basket. So you should, you should be able to, you should be able to get this very common terminology. But our prize for this morning is the great prophetic books of Daniel Revelation, the black uh, Bible study journal that you'll be able to get and make notes in. It'll be really amazing and incredible. Also, understanding Daniel and Revelation, which is a commentary about those two books. So you'll be able to become your own theologian. But again, that question was, what prowling animal did Peter compare the devil to? 0491-064-669. Many have wondered why the great Protestant Reformation of the 16th century exploded with such force across medieval Europe and was able to gain so much ground in such a short space of time. They've looked to the work of Waldensian and Bohemian missionaries who planted the seeds for that. But this morning we're going to talk about somebody else and to do so is our resident uh Breakfast show historian, Eliza Ma. Eliza, welcome to the show. Eliza Southwell, what am I saying? <laughs> I going to say. Yes, Eliza Southwell. It's fantastic to be on. 
Uh, it's great so to have today, you on the show. Yes, who are we talking about today? Today we're talking about um, a an Irish missionary who is known for his work in medieval France. His name is Columbanus. And so this Columbanus comes from a quite a lineage of Irish missionaries. We've talked in the past about Irish missionaries to Scotland, uh, Columba to Scotland, and Denuth to Wales. Um, Aidan went to England. Um, but the continent wasn't excluded from, from these Irish missionary journeys. And Columbanus spearheaded um, those journeys. He got an invitation um, from a one of the kings of Merovingian France, and he went over, um, shared the gospel with that king and his family. Um, that king thought, oh, this is amazing, invited all of his nobles um, and their sons to be educated by Columbanus, and, and Columbanus set up uh, missionary training schools, Bible schools, that also taught um, also taught these nobles how to read and how to um, govern well, and so these schools were um, drew thousands upon thousands of students in France, and these were the first um, schools of of Celtic Christianity uh, to be introduced to France. And this is fascinating because it really does continue the story of Celtic Christianity. We There is so little known about Celtic Christianity today. Mm. Uh, it's been very obscured by you know the history of the Roman Catholic Church during this particular mm. period. But its influence, even when it was you know pushed back to the very edges of the known world at that time, really became very powerful and very strong and spread throughout the British Isles and mm. through Europe as well. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So there were Catholic clergy in France at the time. Um, the the grandfather of the king I mentioned was Clovis I, and he united France um, and and established the Merovingian dynasty. And Clovis I actually this is a this is a very um bizarre kind of story about how he came to be baptized a Catholic, but he was originally pagan. Um, and he heard about Aryan Christianity from, from Germany, and he was very interested in that. But his wife was Catholic, and his wife, when their first son was born, his wife secretly baptized their son as a Catholic, and um, he found out about this when their son died, probably caught pneumonia and, and died very shortly after. And so when their second, second son was born, um, guess what his wife did them. He, she um, baptized their second son a Catholic. He also got pneumonia, um, but he survived. And so shortly after that, um, Clovis I became a Catholic. None of his nobles took any interest in this, um, which is a bit bizarre because it's not as if he, he wasn't, um, like he united all of France. He was very politically powerful and influential. Um, so who knows? Perhaps he, perhaps he was baptized a Catholic just to shut his wife up, stop her nagging. But, um, maybe we'll never know. But, so Clovis united France, became a Catholic. There were Catholic clergy in France when Columbanus showed up, um, a couple of generations later. And they were not impressed with him, <laughs> predictably. Yes. Um, very so predictably. like, yeah, like elsewhere, Catholics evangelized in France by watering down the truths and standards of the Bible to make it more palatable to pagans. Um, so this was a, 
a big contrast to Columbanist who evangelised by establishing schools through education, um, give people um, all the give people the context they need, tell people about Jesus, lay it out for them, um, and let people make their own decision. Um, so on top of that, the French clergy were notorious for their corruption, and they they weren't interested in they didn't um, have any depth of teaching. And they, they really had not much to offer. And they were considered little more than beggars. Um, and they were really affronted by Columbanus' popularity and success and probably pretty jealous of that. Um, and the French bishops summoned him to explain his differences, especially over Easter. A lot of this conflict um, comes up over Easter because um, this is obviously an important date in the Christian calendar. And um, it's one of the more obvious outworkings of these differences. Um, But Columbanus was also accused of being a Judaizer. Um, Oh, so he was a Sabbath keeper. Yeah, that's right. Judaizer is shorthand for Sabbath keeper. Mm. And so uh, Columbanus actually refused to attend. He um, didn't appreciate being summoned by these bishops. He didn't recognize their claim of authority over him, but he did write to them. Um, and he was pretty frank. Um, he was pretty direct in rebuking them for their corruption. But he was also, um, he really humbly begged them to leave him to do his work in peace, pretty much. Um, so he found that there was an interesting balance in his letter that um, he was, he didn't want to compromise on the truth. He said, obviously, there are differences between us. We do things very differently, and um, and yet he tried to be as polite as he could in the circumstances. So this is a this is kind of like a a reformation long before the reformation in many ways i mean this is a this is the the, the true gospel mm. of salvation by grace i mean this guy's a sabbath keeper as the celtic mm. church was and uh, it seems to have taken a very strong hold in france much more of a hold than even the catholic church at this particular period absolutely absolutely so we're talking about around about 600 um the year 600 and so columbanus well, there's the, his first biography, which was written a few decades after he died. His first biography claims that um, at the time of his death, there were a thousand clergy um, who recognized him as their leader in France, mm. which seems an impossible number. <laughs> um, I cannot confirm or deny, um, but but obviously he was. Um, the the gospel took France by storm uh, because of the work that he did. He wasn't alone. He came over with 12 other teachers from Ireland. Um, but the gospel has power wherever it goes. It does. And fortunately, he, he um, for the most part, um, around Merovingian France, he had um, a fair bit of, of political support as well or at least um, kings didn't interfere a great deal with the work that he was doing. Um, And so Merovingian France covers not only modern-day France, but a lot of Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, 
some of Switzerland and and um, northern Italy as well. So this was this was a big a big area that was affected by the gospel. Mm, that's yeah. it. That's it. And, and do, so this do, really yeah, do we do we know how it was that uh, Celtic Christianity died out in France? Uh, I, mean, mm, I mean, it died yeah. out to the point that Roman Catholicism took over. The Reformation, yeah. of course, comes along in the in the 16th century. It goes like wildfire through France, but then mm. is brutally suppressed, uh, which then mm-hmm. results in the French Revolution. So France really went down a a very uh, a very sad path after the establishment of Celtic yeah. Christianity. Yeah, we don't tend to think of France as, as a great Protestant power. Um, and that is in large part because of France's historical relationship with, very close relationship with the papacy. Um, the French kings um, throughout the medieval period had the title Fide Defensor or Defender of the Faith. And of course that was the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Really, throughout throughout the Merovingian dynasty of France, um, Celtic Christianity thrived. But when the Merovingian dynasty fell, it was replaced by um, someone our listeners will probably have heard of, Charlemagne or Charles the Great. Um, yes. He was he was the first great Carolingian king. He took over with the support of the Catholic Church, um, and in return, Charlemagne basically harassed the, the Celtic church in in his territory. Um, he was awarded the title of Defender of the Faith and the founding of the Roman Empire under Charlemagne, he was, he, the Pope crowned him uh, the new Roman Emperor and the founding of the Holy Roman Empire cemented papal influence over Central Europe um, and that continued all the way to Martin Luther. Um, and so really what the there's a reoccurring story here that politicians don't and political power does not um doesn't spread the gospel but it can do an awful lot to um to stamp it out mm. Mm. and i think you know scripture tells us don't put your faith in princes um they fail us. God never does. And so I think that's something we can we can learn from this story, that as much as we pray for our politicians and we it's important that they make God honoring decisions, um, really what we're doing is is trying to prevent them from um or, or pray that they don't make bad decisions rather than impose the truth or what we see as the truth. Mm. Yes, it's interesting because you look at you know the history of Roman Catholicism, and often people will just assume that you know that was the Christianity that spread through the whole world back in the day, mm. not realizing yeah. that Roman Catholicism really begins in Rome and really starts to gain you know political power and traction and so forth, you know in the in the third and fourth century, and it takes a long time for it to mm. actually reach uh, the dominance that it has over Christianity. There was a lot of other Christianity uh, when, when Roman Catholicism first started off. It was, mm. you know, almost almost one of the minor forms of Christianity that there were in the world at that particular mm. time, and it took a long time for it to spread from that particular location. The other thing that's interesting about mm. this story, of course, talking about Celtic Christianity, is that we have a whole letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Celtic Christians. That's we, right, the Church of Galatia. 
That's right. You, you, you think of uh, Celtic Christianity, you think of Celtic people like, say, Welsh people or Scottish people and so forth. They're probably our easiest identifiable descendants from the Celts today and they speak, and mm. they speak Gaelic, of course, and the book of Galatians was written to the Gaelic speakers. That's where the, word, the, the name Galatians comes from. And That's so it. Celtic Christianity received the gospel directly from the Apostle Paul himself. Uh, so this wasn't something that they were receiving secondhand. They were actually receiving mm. this firsthand and sending out their own missionaries to take the gospel to the world, and they certainly did a very powerful job of it. That's it. That's it. And, and, and when you talk about you know the size of the you know the French Empire and what later became known as the Holy Roman Empire at this particular time, that mm-hmm. does span a, 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 a large area of Western Europe. And you can see mm-hmm. in many of those areas where it's banned, that's where Protestantism took off the fastest and mm-hmm. established the deepest roots was in those areas that were affected by Celtic Christianity. Yes. And even after Charlemagne um, basically stamped out the Celtic Christianity, France had a long history of um, of. Um, rejecting the Catholic Church or religious movements that um, stood up against Catholic doctrine. Mm. And some of these movements we don't know a lot about, we are, or we only have the, the Catholic side of um, what they believed or how they acted, but uh, groups like the Cathars, um, very popular in the south of France, and the Waldenses, again, we've, we've discussed, um, but... France continued to have pockets of Christians who knew there was something incomplete about the Catholic gospel. Mm, absolutely. And, yeah. Mm. And, and so, obviously, that um, paved the way for the Reformation and John Calvin's work in France. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's such a pity that a country with such an illustrious history of the gospel... Um, today is so secular. It is indeed. Thank you, Eliza, for joining us here to talk about that this morning. This is- Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.